You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, we are uh, coming to the near the end. This is the next to the last week of the series that we've been doing verse by verse through the book of Jude. And so, it, like I said in the first service, it feels like it, we've been doing it since Jesus was born, but you said it's only been nine weeks. Yeah, this, so it'll be, it'll be 10 weeks uh, total, and next there's, week. there's 25 verses in Jude, which averages to two and a half verses a week. I had a church member message me when I said that in first service, and he says, fun fact, at a rate of two and a half verses per week, you can cover the whole Bible in just under 1,500 years. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> we're going to well, have to speed it up uh, eventually. I, I don't think I'm going to make it. <laughs> I don't either. I you don't either. might get closer than me, but I don't think I'm going to make it. Yes. And it's a little bittersweet for me because uh, there's the, so many ways the, the study of Jude has been incredibly just taxing and difficult, and in so many other ways it's been incredibly rewarding because it is so preval- it is so uh, perfect for where we are as a culture and where our, the church is to, in in America today. So it's only 25 verses, right? Is that, is that That's right. Is it 25 verses. And I have never, in over 45 years, had never taught through the book of Jude. And, and Derek and I just decided, you know, let's just jump let's into the it. deep water and let's go for it. Yep. And I had no idea that it was going to be as rich and as rewarding as it has been. So this morning, we're coming to verse 22 and 23 of the little book of Jude. It's just before the book of Revelation. Go back to the left one, one step and you're there. I've heard it said that grace is receiving what I do not deserve and that mercy is when I don't receive something that I actually do deserve, which is typically not a good thing. But in fact, grace cannot come without mercy. Grace and mercy must come together and and mercy typically must come first because the scripture says that God in Christ does not give us what we deserve, which is eternal separation from him because of sin, and that's his mercy. He doesn't give that that we deserve, so that's an act of his mercy. But then he follows his mercy up with his grace, and he gives us what we don't deserve, and that is eternal life. So his mercy gives us what we doesn't give us doesn't give us what we do deserve and great look I'm 67 years old give me a break okay and his grace means that he's giving us what we do not deserve many of you are familiar with the play that has become a movie and it's a classic work by Victor Hugo Les Miserables there it is okay look at you with my West Texas accent French is not very easy but Victor Hugo, in that play, purposely shows this duality of mercy and of grace. And I was corrected this morning that it's not Jean Valjean. That's the way we would say it in West Texas. It's Jean Valjean. There right? it is. Okay, there it Jean is. Valjean. Okay, yep. I'm, I'm getting a little class here. Yep. Um, Jean Valjean has recently been released from prison, and his infraction was that his family was starving. It was a very difficult time in, in, in France's history, and he stole bread to feed his family, and it was caught, and he was cast into prison. And when he's released from prison, he is still in dire straits because he still has no money, and, and he's out on the streets, and it's a cold, and it's a rainy night, and Monsignor Bienvenu, 
however, offers him shelter into his home out of the goodness of his heart. And Jean actually repays the Monsignor's uh, shelter by stealing the silver out of the Monsignor's home. And he goes out, he goes to Cash America to pawn it in. And, and they figure, you know, what is this dude doing with all of this silver? He has to have stolen it. He's arrested. They de- deduce where he's been. And so they take him back to the Monsignor's home uh, to, uh, to get verification that this has been stolen from his home. And the Monsignor does a very surprising thing. He denies that Jean actually even stole the uh, silver. In fact, he says, no, I gave it to him. And so what has he done? Well, Jean by the law, deserves prison. But what has he received? He's received mercy at the hand of the Monsignor. But then to top it all off, the Monsignor actually says to John, after the police have left, I will give you the silver. The silver is yours to take. And so he gets mercy first, which he doesn't get what he deserves, which is another prison sentence. And then he gets grace. The Monsignor actually gives him the very silver that John had stolen. And in the story, he does it for John's salvation. For his transformation, this act of mercy and grace is so that Jean will be so overcome with that that he will become a changed individual. Mm. In fact, in the play, the Monsignor says this, forget not, never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And so in that play, there is first mercy, and then there is grace. And when we look at the New Testament, we discover the very same thing that we have received from God. It is, first of all, he has given us mercy because he does not give us what we deserve, which is eternal separation. He gives us grace, and that is in Christ for, to give us what we do deserve, and that is a, a, an eternal place with him. Mm. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophet Hosea as saying, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Now, if you have the New International Version or the English Standard Version, that translates that word compassion as mercy. It's the same word in the Greek language. It can be translated either way and often is mercy, sometimes compassion. But the interesting thing about that text in Hosea that Jesus quotes is that the prophet Hosea is instructed by God to marry a prostitute, and her name is Gomer. Maybe in Hebrew they said Gomer. I don't know. Maybe in French they would. But her name is Gomer, and God says, I want you to go, and I want you to marry a prostitute, which is an act of mercy for her because she spent her life selling her body, and now she is brought into this man of God's home to be loved and cared for and sheltered. But God says that I'm going to do this. I want you to do this as a word picture to Israel, my people, because God says my, my people have prostituted themselves. Mm. They have gone away and they have sold themselves off to pagan idols and the ways of the world. And you, my prophet, I want you to take this prostitute and bring her into your home as a word picture to my people of my mercy that even in the midst of this disobedience, I am not completely destroying them. Now, as a Christian, obviously, we have all received God's mercy and grace. He didn't give us what we deserved. That's mercy. And he has given us what we don't deserve, and that is a promise of eternal life in him. 
We come to Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, and Jesus says to the disciples, he says, freely you have received, freely give. In other words, everything that you've received, you didn't earn from God. He has given it to you freely. Now you go about the business of also freely giving away the mercy and grace that you have received. And the truth of the matter is, folks, we are all Jean Valjeans before God, are we not? Mm. We are all in need of mercy, and we all are in need of the grace of God, which we cannot earn and which we do not deserve. So with that setting, we come to Jude, verses 22 and 23, where Jude uses that word mercy twice in just two verses. So it's very obvious that the core idea of verse 22 and 23 is about showing mercy. But it's interesting the context in which mercy is used. It's one that's kind of surprising. It's one that we don't normally use the the term mercy, and it's not one that we would expect. The context in which Jude says that we are to show mercy is what we would call evangelism, reaching the lost, defending the face, calling them out out of death into life. And Jude actually says that is an act of mercy when you do that. We see we didn't deserve the gospel coming to us, but it came and we received it freely. And now Jude says to these Christians who are immersed in this environment where people are come in and crept in and tried to lead people astray and many are doubting and many are, are, are walking away from the faith, he says, show mercy to them. Carry to them the truth of God. Hmm. And especially designates three categories of individuals that we are to show mercy to in this way. And it just gets, it gets deeper and deeper with each step. And when you look at all three of these categories of people that we are to show mercy to by carrying to them the truth of God, it pretty much encompasses everybody. It pretty much encompasses everybody on the face of the earth. And, and, I, and I have assigned to myself this morning the easy part, and I've assigned to Derek the very difficult part. And so, uh, I don't know that you assigned it. Well, I've just said, you know, hey, you take this because I don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. That was, okay? That was, that was. No, actually, it really worked out well because it's something that needs to be said by him from his age group and to his age group. And if it was said by a 67-year-old, you know, doddering old man, many of you would reject it. And so I've asked Derek, because he's very involved in this aspect of, of what's happening in our culture, for him to take that particular part truthfully, of the message. Truthfully, this, this message changed pretty drastically about midweek. Yeah. The way we had this outlined Monday. It's funny how things, how it does that, doesn't it? Very different than God says, uh, you look. Yeah. You know, no, you're not going there with no, it. No, no. You're no, taking that, it over here. You're taking it over here. Yeah. You're going, so, uh, all right. Mine didn't really change. Yours, His did. Okay. Yes. So the first group of people that he says we're to show mercy to by sharing with them the truth of God is that we're to show mercy to those who are doubting. In verse 21 that we covered last week, he said to them that they're to keep themselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the final fulfillment of the mercy that he's already given us here in forgiveness when Jesus comes and we enter into that eternity. So he started this idea about mercy, and in verse 22, then he flips it around and goes another direction with it, and he says, and have mercy... So we're waiting on God's mercy. He says, and now you have mercy on some who are doubting. So while we are waiting for the fulfillment of God's mercy in Christ for us in eternity, we are to be about the business, he says, of showing mercy to those around us who are doubting, who are doubting the faith, 
who are doubting Christ, who are doubting salvation, all of those things. And so in this context, the only answer of what he means by their doubting is that they are doubting about the Christian faith. They are doubting some things about what does God's word say and what does it really mean to be a Christian. And he says, go and be a mercy shower to them by answering their doubts. Now, my experience, I've I've kind of categorized people that are doubting into two categories, and I've never really seen a third category. The first category is what I call honest doubters. And these are people that legitimately have some questions about the faith. They legitimately have some doubts. And they don't have an a priori conviction against belief. They're willing to believe if someone can just come and have this dialogue where they are willing to answer their questions and give answer to their doubts, then they will come to believe. But then the other category is what I call the dishonest doubter. This is the person that says they have doubts, but they've already made an a priori decision against belief. They have an a priori bias against believing. They're not going to believe no matter what. And so every question, that, every question they have that you answer, they just have another question and another question and another question. And it goes on for eternity because they have already decided they are not going to believe. They are a dishonest doubter. The category of people that Jude seems to be addressing here is those honest doubters. He says, there are people in your midst who are willing to believe. There are people who are standing on the very precipice of belief. There are people who are at the crossroads of belief in your very midst. They just need someone to show them mercy. They need you to show them mercy to come along and address their doubts and address their questions. Now, Jude is making an assumption here, isn't he? He's making an assumption that these Christians to whom he's writing have some mercy to give to the doubter. Because you see, you can't give what you don't have. And if someone has questions, but you don't have answers from God's word, then you can't show mercy. And so the question is for us, if we're looking at this, that we are commanded to be mercy showers to doubters, and that means to go and be able to engage with them and answer their questions and address their doubts, Do you even have any mercy to give to the doubting person? Because you see, the mercy here isn't the way we usually use the word. It isn't physical in nature. It's not that this person needs physical bread and you have physical bread and so you show mercy and you give it to them. It's not that they have physical need for water and you have water and so you give them water to drink to quench their thirst. No, what this person obviously needs is not physical bread. He needs the bread of life, which is Jesus. He needs the water of life that springs up, as Jesus says, rivers of living water springing up in the soul and and giving life. And the question is, do you have that bread to give? Do you have that kind of spiritual water to give? When someone says, well, I have some doubts about this bread of life guy, dude, (laughs) You know, this bread of life that you speak of, that Jesus is this bread of life. And and you say that Jesus is like this river of living water that will spring up and give meaning and purpose. And and I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. Do you have anything for me? But I have doubts about this guy, see. I have doubts about this Jesus. So does the Bible really say what you say it says about him? 
Does the Bible really say that Jesus was literally God incarnate in human flesh? Can you show me in the Bible where it says that? Can you take your Bible and open it up and, and answer my questions and answer my doubts? I have doubts about why Jesus died on the cross. I'm, I'm told that it was a horrible tragedy, that it wasn't really in plan, yet I hear you say that he was determined from the very beginning of the world that Jesus was going to die on the cross. Can you show me in your Bible where it says that and explains why that was even necessary? And I have questions about this salvation that you talk about. You know, you say it's free. That it's given by grace. And there is nothing in this world that's free. I know that. I've lived long enough to know. Nothing is free. Surely there's something I must do to earn and to deserve this salvation. Can you open your Bible? And can you show me where the Bible says these things? Can you show me mercy? Do you have any mercy to give to me? Now, see, the truth of the matter is, folks, I know that many in this room could talk about these subjects because you've heard us teach about them. You've been, in, you've, you know, you've been in Sunday school. You've read the Bible. And you could say, oh, yeah, yes, yes, salvation is free. It's not by works. But if someone says, well, show me in your book where it teaches that. Oh, well, I can't really do that. You need to go talk to Derek about that, you know, or somebody else. So, so you're saying to me, you have no mercy to give me? I need mercy. I need someone to show me. And, and you can't do that? I have, I have questions. Do you have any answers that, other than just telling me what you think? Show me in the book that you call the book of God. Explain. Give me an answer. Hmm. That's tragic, isn't it? Hmm. That's tragic. And we make a big deal about showing physical mercy, giving physical bread, giving physical shelter, giving, giving water, giving all of the things physically, but Christ follower, here's the question. God's word says, do you have any mercy to give someone who's doubting the faith? 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. How many of you could take, have really done the work, could take your Bible and, and open it up and show someone where it talks about the hope that is within you. 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, be diligent to present yourselves to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If you were to walk out of here this morning and a doubter said, I have doubts, I have questions about this man, Jesus. Can you show me what the Bible says about him? Would you have an ounce of mercy to give? Could you do that? We often hear Christians talk a lot about mercy, feeding people, sheltering people, clothing people. What about doubters? What about doubters? Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I mean, what good is it? He could live in a mansion here, drive a nice car, have food, shelter, all those kinds of things. And then, boom, he's dead and he loses his soul for eternity. What does it profit him? Is it any good? Is it worth it? I have to ask this question. What, it, what would it profit someone if you filled his or her belly with bread, physical bread, because they were hungry, and you didn't give them the bread of life? What would it profit them if they were dying of physical thirst and you provided thirst, you dug a well for them in their backyard, but you didn't ever speak to them about the river of living water in Jesus? 
What would it profit them if you built them a house? And there's nothing wrong with that. But you built them a house, but you never introduced them to the Father so that they could someday enter into the Father's house for eternity that Jesus speaks of. You see, the first face of mercy, folks, for us is to be equipped to answer the doubter's question. Mm. He says, show mercy to those who are doubting. And then the second face... I will call this group the deconstructionists. I'm going to define what this means in a moment. But verse 23 goes on, and, and Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. It's really, it's really wild terminology that he's using here. The second group that Jude gets to, that we are to extend mercy to, are a, a bit worse off than the first group. The first group simply has doubts regarding what the Scripture says, who Jesus is, whatever, whatever the topic may be. Mm -hmm. The second group has begun to move away from the truth of God and to, begun, to begin acting out of that doubt, right? They're moving, in other words, away from truth and towards destruction. Judah's saying, show them mercy by snatching them out of the fire. They aren't in the fire yet, but if nothing changes, if they continue down this path, they're going to eventually end up there. Now, fire imagery is very, uh, it's very intentional. It's used quite often in the New Testament. Jesus uses it. Paul uses it. Jude uh, has already used it once in this short letter, back, all the way back to verse 7. If you remember, he was talking about the kind of judgment that awaits these false teachers that had crept into the church and begun leading people away from the truth, and he likens the judgment coming for them as the same kind of judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah faced in the book of Genesis, which was fire and brimstone, literally, fire and hail, right? And so this is already terminology Jude has engaged in, but I think he has another Old Testament passage in mind when he says what he says here in verse 23. It comes out of Zechariah chapter 3. It's somewhat of a, a court scene where uh, you have God, or really the angel of the Lord, Satan, and then Joshua, the high priest, is there. And it says in Zechariah 3.1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him or execute him, depending on how you translate that word. So it's a, a court scene where Satan is literally the prosecuting attorney and or the executioner ready to carry out judgment on Joshua if he is found guilty. Like some people are on Facebook. Exactly. Just ready with the hammer. Ready with the hammer. Absolutely. Now to be clear, Joshua is in fact guilty. Verse 3, it says, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel of the Lord, indicating that he is impure, that he has sin upon him. So, so he is rightfully being accused by mm -hmm. Satan of his sin. It would be correct to execute judgment upon him, okay? But God extends mercy. Uh -huh. In other words, he does not give him what he deserves. Look what he says in verse 2. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? There's that terminology again. Snatched from the fire. He isn't in the fire, but he should be. He's about to be, and in an act of mercy, he is pulled. And then even further, verse 4, in an act of grace, God purifies him by giving him clean clothes. Mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. This is the imagery that Jude is conveying. Some are rightly headed for the fire. They're not just doubting the faith. They've begun to move away from the faith. They have begun to move towards destruction. Judah's saying, show them mercy. Hmm. James says in five, nine, uh, James 5, 19 and 20, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth 
And someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. I mean, listen to the verbiage here. Save them from death. Snatch them out of the fire. These are powerful words. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of mercy. There's a lot of ways that that we could address this second group. It has moved from doubt into doubt-driven action. Uh, And this group has looked a lot different depending on the era that we're talking about. The first and second centuries of the church, um, there was a false teaching being propagated known as docetism. It later becomes Gnosticism. And it leads a lot of people to doubt the scripture and ultimately away from the truth of God. You get to the fifth century, uh, a false teaching called Nestorianism creeps up. It leads a lot of people away from the truth of God and into error. 20th century, uh, primarily in Europe, Germany, uh, you have the higher criticism movement, leads a lot of people away from the truth of God and into error. Today, I would call this group the deconstructionism group. Those who are moving towards what we call deconstruction. How many of you have heard that word recently used in the last few years? About Some of you probably have. Deconstructing their faith. Some of you okay. probably haven't. Uh, also sometimes referred to as ex-evangelicals, people who are, are cleverly moving away from evangelicalism. Um, people, I wanted to say a couple clarifying things. When we talk about deconstruction, there are two kind of discussions that can be had about this. One is deconstructing hurtful experiences in the church. And one of them is deconstructing your faith as a result of hurtful experiences. That second one is the one I am going to be addressing. Not deconstructing hurtful experiences, but deconstructing faith as a result of hurtful experiences. Now, what does it mean to deconstruct? What does that mean? Let me give you a definition. It's the process of systematically dissecting and rejecting your beliefs. And I want you to pay close attention to that last word, beliefs, because we're going to come back to that here in a moment. I'm going to say more about it. But it is the process of systematically dissecting and rejecting your beliefs. This usually takes place um, with people who have experienced hurt, and at best, it leaves them, after the process has taken shape, it leaves them at best with a very progressive, very non-historical, and very non-biblical version of Christianity, I don't know that you can really call it that, and at worst, it leaves them in full-blown agnosticism and or atheism. Now, um, to be clear, there's a lot of reasons for why this happened, but ultimately, it typically centers around trauma, some kind of hurt, and, and it's either hurt inside the church, and, and it creates this kind of dissonance that how can the church have done this based on what I know, and so this, everything gets called into question, Right? The other way it happens is when hurt happens outside of the church, and again, my skill set or my tool set for how to reckon with this experience from the scripture is lacking, and so I have no way of really handling it, reckoning with it. Either way, it leaves me in this state of pain and trauma where I begin to pull apart everything to try to understand how it could happen. And I have a lot of time this morning to talk about all the nuances of this. I do want to say that In the spring of next year, 2022, on my Wednesday night classes, after we finish the Old Testament, the next class I'm going to be doing is a class called Deconstructed. And we're going to talk about some of these experiences. I'm hoping to get people uh, who have walked through this and and really get 
in a good conversational format to talk about these issues because it's a really, really important thing that we uh, understand here. But what I do want to suggest to you for our purposes this morning is that the way you extend mercy to someone in this category is, is virtually identical to the way you extend mercy to the first person, but with a few subtle changes. And let me say, this is not just an academic no, 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 no. treatise no. this morning. It sounds no. quite ap- academic, and in some level it is. But it is very practical because this is sweeping through the church in America right now. Christians who are saying, I am deconstructing my faith. Well, and we're going to get, get very practical. It's, it will get very practical, but it sounds quite kind of ethereal and, and, and academic, and it is on an academic level, but it, it does have a very practical landing spot here in a moment. Yes. So, so don't get lost in the academic verbiage because you need to understand. You're going to hear this word deconstructionism if you haven't already. It's coming. It's yeah. coming. It's a, it's a popular thing. Now, the, the same approach applies. You want to come to them because ultimately there are doubts. There's this sort of dissonance between what they've experienced and what they think is true. And so being able to open God's word very specifically to those hurts and pains and and with intentionality and compassion walk through those things to try and understand where the breakdown happens. At the end of the day, a major problem at the very center of of this phenomenon known as deconstruction is a lack of understanding what the scriptures actually teach. Mm -hmm. And that shouldn't surprise you. The the biblical literacy is dreadfully low uh, in 2021 in America, really in the world. They say the average adult reads on a seventh grade level. Seventh grade level. The average Christian adult probably understands scripture on about a kindergarten level. Kindergarten level, yeah. So it makes sense it would play a role here. But let's get practical and let's talk about where this really shows itself, okay? Um, let's talk about social justice for a moment, because this is a, a big area that I think spurs on a lot of this, this movement. Um, the deconstructed individual will say, usually, that the church ought to be doing more social justice. There ought to be more of this happening. There ought to be more providing for the poor. There ought to be more giving to the underprivileged. There ought to be more engaging in the social realm. And, and, and I want to submit to you that this provides a very convenient way to do what human beings do when they experience pain in any given field or format. When I am in pain, I do not often want to face that pain. And so what I'll do is I'll find something, anything in my life that I can be critical of to take my attention away from the very thing that I am trying to avoid at all costs. So Christians often will experience hurt rather than facing the hurt, will find anything to be critical to avoid it. Now you couple that with a lack of biblical literacy, and what ends up happening is we end up finding problems that, because we don't really understand the Bible, aren't actually problems. They're problems with our understanding of the Bible. So here's what happens, is someone gets hurt, they begin to think critically. Maybe the world is, is, is kind of impacting them as well. And they start going, you know what? The church ought to be doing more for social justice. We ought to be more. And, and so they end up laying this burden of social justice at the feet of the church. And when the church doesn't respond, that shakes their, their confidence in who the church should be at large. The church is going, well, hold on a minute. That's not our charge biblically. We do engage in levels of justice, but not in the world's definition of it. And so you have immediately this conflict blooming between an individual who thinks the church should be doing something and the church who understands what her call is according to the scripture. The charge actually for physical care, 
if we're just being honest about this, for physical care, for providing for the needs in the New Testament is overwhelmingly oriented towards the church, with one not another. the world, the one another's. The world is a hostile place. The church is under attack. And so the New Testament commands us and directs us to provide for those in the body who are suffering as a result of their faith in a hostile world. Now, are we to give to the poor and the needy and the outside? Absolutely, but that is a means of evangelism, of sharing the gospel, so that we don't end up meeting a physical need and leaving them for an eternity condemned, as James mentioned a moment ago. So there's a, there's a, a separation here that the Scripture gives very clearly in the New Testament. But there is this, that if you don't know the New Testament, then you don't know that. And so the charge is, I, I need to do anything I can to get my mind off of this hurt and this pain, and so I'm going to find this problem, and I'm going to lay it at the feet of the church, and when the church doesn't respond, then it shakes me to my core, because I thought we were good people, and we're not, and, and so all of a sudden, deconstruction. And because the world seems to be place. doing a better job of what the church should be doing, right. and, and it's not even what the church should be doing. So you've got one side who's saying the church, Christians, ought to be caring for those outside of the church. You have another group that's saying Christians should be primarily charged for caring for those inside the church, and there is conflict. There is turmoil. Now, why does that happen? Why is it that it seems like there are these groups of people who see this stuff so differently? I want to submit to you, it has to do with your worldview. This is something we talk about a lot in here, something we're going to continue to talk a lot about in here through the years, because your worldview is so detrimentally important to everything that you do and, and virtually who you are. You will view God, yourself, the church, the world, justice, virtually everything differently depending on the worldview that you have. It is the lens by which you see everything. So let's talk about that for a moment. The biblical worldview. This is the first. There's really two going on inside the church today. The biblical worldview is the one that should be going on, if we're just being honest, which says this. This is what we espouse at City on a Hill. That your values and your morals, your moral values as a human being are defined and shaped by the scripture, okay? It's not what I think is right. It's not what I feel should be right. It's not what other people say is right. It is what the scripture says is right. Scripture defines right and wrong objectively for me. It defines how I should act. It defines how I should not act. It defines how I should engage in things like social justice. It shapes my values. So let's talk about values here, again, just for a moment. Stuff like love and acceptance. These are big terms right now in the world. Love and acceptance. Everyone wants to feel loved. Everyone wants to feel accepted. Very central human values that we're dealing with. Now, people with a biblical worldview will sometimes be accused of, and sometimes rightfully so, but, but if we're operating on a clean biblical worldview, we will be accused sometimes of not being loving enough or accepting enough, right? And so you'll hear people say things like, doesn't the Bible say you should love your neighbor? Yes, it does. But what does biblical love look like? What does that look like? Does, does biblical love speak truth? Does biblical love confront lies that have been believed? Does biblical love confront sin that is being engaged in? Or does it just let you live your truth? Just let you live and let live. That's loving. That's not what the Bible says. It, so you'll hear people say, well, you know, Jesus accepted all people. Well, first of all, no, he didn't. <laughs> you haven't read the Bible if you think that. 
But, but let's talk about accepting others. Should we accept other people? Yes. People that are different than us? Yes. People who disagree with us? Yes. But what does the Bible say about what that acceptance looks like? Is everyone accepted into every category regardless of actions? Is, is, are there never any needs for boundaries with people? Do we believe that we should just throw boundaries out the door and accept all people no matter what they do or how they act? I mean, almost certainly you would have to say no to that. You would have to say no to that. Use the example of a friend or a family member that you may or may not have who is an addict, and I know many of you do. I do, okay? Would it be loving and would it be right to accept them into all areas of your life knowing that they were hell-bent on their own self-destruction due to their addiction? Is it loving to go, yeah, I'm not going to really talk to him about that. I'll just let him do his thing. It's their truth. I love him, and it's his <laughs> truth. That would be almost certainly the most unloving thing you could do. That will lead to death. I'm just being real. It, will, it has, and it will continue to lead to death. That is not loving at all. That is a very unloving thing. Biblical love and acceptance say, yes, love and accept, but do so with confrontation and with boundaries and with actual care to the person who is suffering. So it's not that we don't believe in love and acceptance or that it's not important. It's that they are subordinate to the Scripture. My idea of love and acceptance means absolutely nothing (laughs) at all. I don't care what I think. I don't care what you think. I don't care what James thinks. I care what God thinks. I care what the Bible thinks. Oh, wait a minute. Unless we're talking about the book of James, and then oh. I care very much about what James thinks. Yeah, that's the half-brother of that's Jesus. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're subordinate. Therefore, they are defined by the Scripture, these values. Now, the progressive worldview is the second one. And I'm not even going to talk about the secular worldview, because the secular worldview doesn't even care about Scripture at all. Yeah. And they don't want us to care about it either. Okay? That's a separate thing. But in the church, there's also this sort of progressive worldview. And again, there are a lot of nuances to the differences, but in general... One of the major separating factors is that the ordering of values is exactly the opposite. Rather than letting Scripture define your values, your values will shape the way that you interpret Scripture. Okay? So the biblical worldview says we hold values and morals subordinate to the Word of God. The progressive worldview says we hold Scripture subordinate to what we believe are right and wrong. So let's give another example here. Let's talk about it because we got to be comfortable with talking about things and engaging with things Mm -hmm. that the Bible speaks to without being harsh, but without being soft. Let's talk about the LGBTQ community for a moment. Hopefully this will help you understand the turmoil that exists, the conflict that exists between people who say they are Christians and people who have problems with the Christian worldview with regard to this topic. The biblical worldview speaks to sexuality. It does. The Bible has a lot to say about this. If we believe the Bible, then we have to hold and recognize that there is a, an objectively right view of sexuality and a wrong view of it. And it shapes how we engage with people around us. And it's not as simple as, by the way, uh, like heterosexuality is right and homosexuality is wrong. There are a lot of heterosexuality issues that plague the church, honestly, a lot more than anything else. Right. Pornography, so on and so forth. So lest we be confused here for a moment. <laughs> um, but, but let's talk about, again, with regard to same-sex people, the same-sex community, this shapes how we engage with people in this community. Do we love them? Absolutely, yes. 
And we have failed at that in a lot of ways, dreadfully. And, and, and so we, we got to recognize that and own that. But again, does love speak truth? Truth, let me just, can we be honest about this? Truth can feel unloving when I disagree with it. Hmm. Would you agree? When someone has spoken truth to you that you did not want to hear, how did that feel? Did it feel loving? <laughs> no, but it was loving, but it didn't feel loving. So we got to understand the difference there. Should we accept them? Yes, absolutely. But again, what does acceptance look like? They are human beings created in the image of God. They are worthy of dignity and respect and kindness and grace and compassion. Absolutely, yes. On those terms, we accept all people regardless of whatever or whoever they are. But are there boundaries for acceptance? Absolutely. Pastoral ministry, for example. Does anyone qualify for pastoral ministry just regardless of the way they live their life or the choices they make? No, they don't. So there are boundaries acceptable in the biblical worldview that the progressive worldview rejects. They say, can I bring it down a step further? Please. Right now, there are denominations who are beginning to ordain for the pastoral ministry openly gay LGBTQ, okay? And saying, no, they have a right to be fully accepted and loved into the church and have, there are no boundaries of what they can do. Now, is that a biblical worldview or is that a progressive worldview that is being imposed upon the biblical worldview? See, which one is, is on top here? Is the biblical worldview above this or is this above that? And that's what Derek was getting at. And, and so there's places where acceptance means no. Yep. It has to be. Are there or everything we believe is just nonsense and we can just throw it out the world, out, out the window. So the progressive worldview, this is, they'll even go a step further than that. And they'll say, they'll say, if my highest value is love and acceptance, then anything the Bible says that is hostile to love and acceptance, as I understand it, as I define it, should be rejected. So you hear people say things like, oh, well, that's just an antiquated way of thinking. Yeah. You know, uh, that's just an old, outdated book. I mean, there's things, some good things in it. It's 2,000 years old. 2000, yeah, we've evolved since then, right? <laughs> we're, we're far more advanced in our thinking <sighs> since then. And we laugh, but this is, this is how people think. So this brings me back to what I said earlier, right? The definition of deconstructing, that the process of systematically dissecting and rejecting your beliefs. I want to emphasize that because here's, here's the reality. I find a lot more progressive worldview in the church today than biblical worldview. And if, and often this is the case, people with progressive worldviews end up deconstructing, here's what's happening. You end up deconstructing your Christian beliefs that actually aren't really Christian at all. Mm -hmm. Because they're beliefs about things that have been ordered improperly. And their beliefs built upon a lack of really understanding what the Bible says. Because your beliefs are built on worldly values, not scripture. It is ironic to me, and I'm just going to be honest, this is, I say this in love, I say this with absolute kindness, it is ironic to me that many people who deconstruct their faith have never really learned the faith to begin with in order to even deconstruct it. So that you think that you're dissecting and rejecting Christianity, really you're just dissecting what you think Christianity is based on a dreadfully lacking study of the Bible. Or what you wish it was. Or what you wish it was. Yeah. And here's the crazy part, is there's a whole community aspect of this deconstruction movement now as well. You have a lot of people falling into the same category that end up sort of rubbing shoulders together and finding support for what they feel like. So you end up, here's what happens, you end up with a very hurt person seeking refuge with a lot of hurt people and not a lot of healed people. So think for a moment, if you have cancer, 
you are going to commiserate with other people who have cancer. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But you would never only do that and never see an oncologist, <laughs> hopefully. You would do both because you would recognize that we're all sick and I need someone who can treat this sickness. I need hope that I can, I can get better, that I can heal. We say a lot around here, James has said this before and I love this statement, that your malady can become your ministry. If you'll allow God, your malady can become your ministry. It's, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of healing. It takes a lot of radically honest self-examination. But it is possible. You can let your malady become your ministry. And here is my fear for this group in the deconstructing movement, is that you are going to let your malady just become someone else's malady. And you're going to end up rubbing shoulders and you're going to end up sort of circulating this stuff around in such a way where no one ever gets better and, and in fact you only ever get worse. And here's the worst part about it is that after you've deconstructed and you've dissected and rejected everything that you thought Christianity was, do you know what you're left with at the end? The original hurt and pain that you were avoiding the whole time. And now it set in further and deeper and you have no tools to deal with that thing. If you want to deconstruct, let me say this. Don't read a book about deconstruction. There are a lot of books out there. Don't read a book about deconstruction. If you want to deconstruct, read the Bible. Find out what you're deconstructing. Chances are, when you read the Bible, it will deconstruct you. That's the goal. That's the objective. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through bone and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It will pull you apart piece by piece and reveal to you your error. And in, and in turn, check this out, bring you hope and healing for the pain that you've experienced. It's an can amazing I, thing. Can I jump in? And yeah. Ju I just want to give a testimony for just a moment. These last four years or so as a pastor, I've been pastoring for over 40 years. My entire adult life has been wrapped into the local church because I believe that the local church, Jesus' body, is the hope of the world. And I've fought a lot of battles through the years for truth and for God's word. Most of them were directed outside of the church. Most of the battles were attempts to uh, kind of come at the church. And so equipping God's people to understand that. In the last four years, the greatest battles we fought have come from inside the church. It's, it's the first time in, in over 40 years of ministry that I've experienced that. And I find that happening all over America. I find that happening in churches all over America. I speak in churches all over America in workshops and conferences, and I have intimate contact with pastors and pastor staffs and churches, and churches are being split right down the middle over this issue, these issues that Christians are saying, this is what we ought to be doing as Christians, and that is not the biblical worldview. That is a progressive worldview that is being imposed upon Scripture, and those who stand for the truth of Scripture then wind up being attacked and people leave and churches are being split all over America, not based upon biblical truth, but based upon progressive truth that is being imposed upon God's word. And it's the saddest thing that I've ever seen. And quite frankly, folks, I got to tell you, I've hurt some of you, and I know I have, and my intent was not to hurt you. My intent was to destroy the error, and it always has been. And there's a part of me, there, there just is a part of me, there's a human part of me that is thankful I'm coming to the end of my ministry. I don't envy you. 
I don't. Because the fight that you will be fighting will be from the inside of the church. And that's hard. That's hard because these are people we walk with. These are people we care about. Yet when error begins to come in, you have to confront it. You have to confront it up. You can't just accept it and just take it on because then it just destroys what the Christian faith even is. And I've never had to fight that battle until the last four or five years. And all of a sudden, the adversaries are not out there. They're here. And they're here all over America in evangelical churches. And I quite frankly don't envy you. I I honestly don't. I, I pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Take me home. Go ahead. Yeah. Um. It is hard. It is very, very challenging. And um, judging by the, the feedback that we got after first service, there are a lot of people who are wrestling with this, and we're very grateful for this. And I suspect I'll get a lot of, of uh, feedback that is uh, challenging as well, and that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to engage in challenge. I'm happy to engage with your doubt. But what I'm going to ask you is that when you come to me with doubt, you be prepared to hear answers. You be prepared to hear what the Scripture actually has to say. I'm not going to try to force you to believe it or think it, but I will show you what it says. And my hope, and I know James' hope as well, is that you out there who are not wrestling with this will learn how to do the same thing. I've I've said it many times in this sermon series, and I will say it again because I think it's so important for you to hear this, that I would challenge the idea out there floating around in social media that the world would be better if there were more pastors like James and I willing to speak the truth. That is weak thinking. The world would be better if there were more Christians willing to speak the truth. That, in, that involves you. You have to learn. You have to learn how to do it. Now let me say as a closing point, because I think this is very important for you to hear as well. There's one last group of people, and I'm going to do it quick. You have the doubters, you have the deconstructionists, and then you have the debased. The third group is the people who They've moved away from the truth of God so deeply that they are now actually hostile to it. They not only think it's wrong, but they are critical and want to tear it down. And this is what Jude says. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Show mercy, but do it with fear. Phobos, it's the Greek word, phobia. With caution. In other words, show mercy, but do it with some boundaries. Do it with some caution. Some of you have people in your life that you feel like, I'm a bad Christian if I don't show mercy to this person because they're my mom or my dad or my sister or my brother or my whatever. And so Jesus wants me to be merciful to them. And that's true. Jesus does want you to be merciful to them. But Jude says, if it brings potential damage to your faith, don't do it. That's a truth. Mercy is never to be given to the detriment of your purity. Hmm. If that person stands to rub off on you more than you stand to rub off on them, it's time to put some boundaries up, folks. You do so from a difference, you can, you, distance. You can pray for them. You can share the gospel with them. You can love them from afar. But you hold your arms at a distance and you keep them from getting close enough to you to harm the purity of your faith. So many Christians get run over and destroyed because they were trying to do the nice thing 
and they let someone toxic and destructive into their life with good intentions, but that allowed them to absolutely run them over. Messages like this are hard because it forces us to say things to you whom we love and have committed our entire lives to serve, knowing that it might run some of you off. And I I said this a few months ago at a leadership conference, that I will never, as your pastor, try and convince any of you to join this church. I will not do it, because if I have to convince you to join, I'll have to convince you to stay. And I'm likely to have to convince you to stay after messages and sermon series like these. And that's not a job I want, nor is the job I believe I'm commanded to engage in. But I will tell you this, you stick around with your doubts, you learn the word of God, you confront your doubts with the truth of God's word, and you confront those hurts and those experiences that you've walked through, those those horrible, sometimes unspeakable experiences that you've walked through, and you allow the Holy Spirit of God here to move in a way that only he is capable of moving to bring healing upon you, you will find yourself one day letting your malady become your ministry, and you will reach people just like you with the same level of hopelessness that you feel right now because you saw it was possible for God to do that. That is what is compelling about the gospel, help, hope, and healing of Jesus. That's what we're all about here. But it requires honest conversations like this. Pray the Holy Spirit will enforce in your heart exactly what he intends to. Pray with me. Father, thank you. I thank you for the work that has been done here for so many years. The challenges that you've put forth and the challenges that you have overcome through just this honest ministry that you've set forth here. I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word with your people. How we love you, how we're grateful for everything that it says. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. Um, I do want to ask, I know on a rather, uh, thank you. Ending on a rather serious note like that, um, let me bring some levity to you by asking you if you would just pick up your chair and move it to the side of the wall now that we're done here. Uh, We have the women's Christmas party tomorrow. Hope to see you then. God bless you all. See you next time.